Indigenous Rights Radio, because knowledge is power. Indigenous peoples are not just stakeholders. Indigenous peoples are rights holders. Cultural survival reiterates the importance of Indigenous peoples' access to direct participation at the same negotiation tables as nation-states at the UNFCCC COP27, with the right to have a voice and vote, and the inclusion of references to human and Indigenous peoples' rights in all documents. To find out more how the effects of climate change are impacting Indigenous peoples, Cultural Survival spoke to Andrea Kalman. Thank you for inviting me to participate, Sheldon. I'm very happy to share my thoughts. Um, my name is Andrea Carmen. I'm from the Yaqui Indigenous Peoples um, in the Sonora Desert, uh, which is southern Arizona, United States, and uh, northern Sonora, Mexico. So we're divided by an international border, but we are desert Indigenous peoples. So climate change impacts us um, in a very strong way. We are farming peoples and we have um, a very serious drought here uh, in the Sonora Desert. Um, My organization is the International Indian Treaty Council. I started out working as a student intern uh, for the International Indian Treaty Council, or IITC, uh, back in 1976 when I was a, a student at the University of California. And I became a full-time staff member in 1983 and the executive director in 1992. So this year, it's been 30 years that I've been executive director. The IITC um, was founded in 1974 on Standing Rock Reservation, specifically to provide Indigenous peoples, treaty nations, traditional peoples, um, with um, an international voice to address our human rights concerns and the various human rights violations and violations of our nation-to-nation treaties um, at the United Nations because there was no uh, recourse or access to justice within the legal systems of the colonial government, not just the United States, but um, throughout the um, this hemisphere. Um, IITC now uh, represents um, hundreds of indigenous peoples, nations, um, tribal governments, traditional societies, all the way from Alaska to Argentina, throughout the Americas, um, into the Caribbean islands and the Pacific islands. And we've been involved in the work on climate change, um, well, really since 1992, since the Earth Summit, when the idea of a convention um, to address Uh, what was recognized as um, a growing crisis um, by the world community at that time. Um, Of course, Indigenous people saw it coming, you know, some say, you know, for many generations and and told in in our prophecies about what would happen if uh, human beings continue to abuse um, the earth and uh, develop in ways that had a negative impact on Uh, the planet, um, human beings, and all living things, which is the case with climate change. But the world community recognized this need back in 1992 and began working on several environmental um, 
legally binding conventions, biodiversity, um, chemicals. Um, but, you know, of course, the one we're addressing now is uh, became the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. So we've been working on it ever since then, um, but very conservatively in the last couple of decades. Although Indigenous peoples, um, until recently, until the last three years, really did not have an opportunity for um, a focused um, official voice in the system. A lot of people don't know, but you know the fa- the famous COP twenty one in Paris in twenty fifteen, the the Paris Agreement. Um, uh, indigenous peoples were not even allowed to be in the room as observers uh, while the negotiations of the Paris Agreement went on. Uh, nevertheless, um, through our our um, hard efforts, it was a very, very difficult uh, negotiation um, through lobbying, through demonstrating outside, through one-on-one um, discussions with the, the nation states, uh, especially friendly states. Uh, Mexico was a big help for us at that time um, in bringing states together. We were able to get rights of indigenous peoples recognized in the Paris Agreement. Um for the first time ever in a legally binding environmental convention, um, the rights of Indigenous peoples were recognized in the preamble. We were trying for, you know, getting it included in the operative. But nevertheless, the way that uh, UN treaty law uh, looks at it and we look at it, the fact that it is in the preamble that human rights, um, not just of Indigenous peoples, but, you know, many, many sectors that we worked with, you know, the recognize recognition of gender rights of of youth of migrants of local communities separate from indigenous peoples um were all recognized you know so this was seen for the first time as a human rights concern and says that um states have to uphold their human rights obligations in any action um that's taken um regarding climate change whether you know, it's part of the cause or part of what's being presented as solutions or adaptation and mitigation, um, addressing um, loss and damage, you know, all the different aspects, financing, all, every piece of what's considered uh, a response to climate change by states and the international community uh, must uphold the obligations, it says. It uses the word obligations of states regarding human rights. I'm from the Yaqui Nation, and we have uh, the northern part of our nation is in the United States, in in Arizona, and um, the central homeland of our nation is uh, in Sonora, Mexico. So we are um, desert peoples, we're farming peoples, and um, so the impacts of climate change have affected us very strongly. you know, I think in 2020 was the hottest, driest summer ever recorded in history um, here in um, the Sonora Desert. And um, even even the most knowledgeable traditional farmers using drought-resistant seeds had a hard time producing um, at that time. And that was the same time that COVID hit us here very, very strongly among, especially with the Indian tribes. So we were able through these double crises to really take a look at how to revitalize our traditional growing methods, water saving methods, 
um, the tribe, the different tribal nations came together and began to um, trade uh, again, which we always did before. But, you know, we revitalized those trade relationships to bring back drought-resistant seeds. And um, we have a family farm, um, my family, and uh, we've been able to um, shift production to drought-resistant seeds, even that some of the other area uh, tribal nations were using that are in particular drought-resistant. So um, we've been able to keep up the food production and also to encourage um um, seed trading across border it's hard difficult because the United States doesn't allow um, seeds to be brought into the United States you know from from the Mexico side but um, we've been doing it nevertheless and making sure that the the crops that are growing well here in the desert um, are also uh, those seeds are provided to our our yaki relatives um, from our same nation across the border and so we're seeing um, you know, a real revitalization of the use of traditional methods, um, traditional seeds, um, trying to see what works the best in, in you know, the, the changing conditions here. But the unpredictability also, I mean, we got a lot of rainfall this year. You know, it wasn't, it, it helped address the drought, but a lot of times when it rains out of what the traditional season for it um, is, uh, it very much also affects the ecosystem in terms of, you know, knocking knocking buds off of plants. Um, I noticed uh, a couple years ago um, when we had rain that fell early, uh, we have a strong, we call it the monsoon season here, you know, like, like they have, you know, in India and other places. It's a very strong flooding rain in the end of July and August. And the plants are attuned to that, but also the animals. Um, we have a certain kind of toad that hibernates under the ground and comes out when the rain starts falling hard and um, also then eats the insects um, that are affecting the plants. But this time they came out in June, which was early. And so it got hot and dry again, and a lot of them died. So we had um, too many insects eating um, the, the crops, the fruits and, and vegetables um, in, in August. And um, it really affected the plants because the, the frogs and toads weren't there to, to eat because they had died. They came out too early and then, then they dried up. So I think it's important to understand that we as indigenous peoples are working with entire ecosystems, not just you know, corn or squash or, you know, beans, but it all works together. And with the animals and plants and the rain and, you know, all of that's changing. And it's, it's been very challenging to address. Um, the Paris Agreement not only recognized the rights of indigenous peoples, but, you know, it was one of the demands you could say that we took to Paris that uh, the traditional knowledge of indigenous peoples, um, the scientific uh, understanding of indigenous peoples um, that is ancestral and millennial about um, weather, about plants and animals, flora and fauna, as, as uh, Article 31 of the UN Declaration talks about, um, 
um, our cultural heritage around food production and, and weather knowledge and ecosystem knowledge be um, respected uh, on an equal level as other kinds of science because this is, we have science too. Um, and so we never asked for the creation of a platform. As I mentioned before, you know, at, at that particular conference of the parties and all of them before that, we weren't even allowed to be in the room um, when the negotiations were taking place, let alone say anything or have any input. Otherwise, the local communities indigenous people's platform would just be called the indigenous people's platform because there are no local communities that participate that was one state in particular insisted that that be the name um but the breakthrough um that the creation of the lsip and then the facilitative working group um in at cop 24 i think in katawiche when it was uh, finally put into place to coordinate the work of this platform um, was a breakthrough not just in the recognition of indigenous people's knowledge as an essential aspect of understanding not just of the causes of climate change but also of the solutions um, based on the on the ground practices of indigenous peoples but the fact that this is um, the only UN body, and that's of all of them across the board, um, that um, recognizes the rights of Indigenous peoples, as Article 18 of the UN Declaration on Rights of Indigenous Peoples says, to participate in decision-making through representatives chosen by themselves. Everyone's heard of the Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues, um, the Expert Mechanism on Rights of Indigenous Peoples in Geneva. And we can nominate the representatives, but at the end of the day, it's the states, either ECOSOC or the Human Rights Council, that does the final selection. Um, the Facilitative Working Group for the LSIP is the only body in the UN system where Indigenous peoples themselves, ourselves, select our representatives, our members, and where we sit in equal number and with equal decision-making authority with the state representatives. So there are seven <coughs> members of Indigenous peoples selected by the seven regions through their own process and seven state representatives, the five um, official UN regions, and then also small islands developing, uh, small island states and um, um, least developed countries. So um, those are the seven, seven state members, seven indigenous members. I had the honor of being selected by the North America region uh, to serve for the first three years of the existence of the facilitative working group. And then last summer, um, we changed out to a new group. Um, each group serves for, for three years, group of members. So, um, but I'm still, you know, planning to participate and attend and support our new representatives uh, from North America who are Graham Reed from Assembly First Nations and Chris Honani, also from the International Treaty Council. He's a youth farmer um, and coordinating uh, the youth roundtable that will be happening at COP27. So that was one thing we were able to do um, when we uh, determined the, the second three-year work plan, uh, because the first group, <laughs> the first members uh, determined uh, and worked on our last year there, what would be um, the work plan for the next three years for the new group coming in. 
um, we really put an emphasis emphasis um, that hadn't been there as strongly before on the role of Indigenous youth as knowledge holders, as practitioners, as drivers of a rights-based approach, um, which is still very much needed and something we have to keep advocating for is to ensure that the rights of Indigenous peoples are upheld. So that's one thing we were able to do in the first three years of the facilitative working group, the FWG, um, and the work of the LSIP is ensure that that rights-based approach, um, uh, upholding that preambular paragraph, you know, addressing obligations of states to the rights of Indigenous peoples would be central, including free prior informed consent relating to what knowledge is shared. We focus mainly on programs and projects and experiences and, and stay away from um, whether on, on the, the web page of the LSIP or even in our activities, actual sharing of knowledge um, and making sure that free prayer informed consent is upheld at all times. For more on the rights of Indigenous peoples, visit cs.org and follow Cultural Survival on Facebook and Twitter.